0: Hello fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Henhouse Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So, I thought I'd make a podcast bring in a slew of folks who've also made records, in one way or another, and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, fellow music nerds. Thank you so much for tuning in and joining me for the podcast Music Makers and Soul Shakers. It's an honor to be here bringing you an episode this month with the great songwriter Billy Bragg. First of all, I would just like to thank Joe Henry, who is responsible for introducing me to Billy Bragg and helping to tee up this interview, which is much appreciated. Thanks, Joe, if you're listening. And uh, if people have not heard the episode with Joe Henry from a couple of years back now, seems weird, Um, please go listen to that. It's a big epic two-parter, and uh, it's one of my favorites. Anyway, thanks, Joe. And it was a real honor to speak with Billy Bragg. He's got a lot of facets of his career that I find really interesting. His songwriting has always been the the focal point, I guess, of, of his career, although there's so many things that he does really well that I've always been drawn to about him. Interestingly, his latest project is a book that I highly recommend, and it's called Roots, Radicals, and Rockers. And it's a history of skiffle music in Britain. For those of you who don't know what skiffle music is, I'm not going to give you a history lesson right now, but essentially it's a kind of a street blues, early rock and roll. And it was a the kind of music that was being played around Britain, by people like Lonnie Donegan he was the the big famous one but there was a lot of other guys who who brought traditional jazz and blues music to a popular audience in Britain in the 50s Lonnie Donegan was a, a huge influence on John Lennon and the quarrymen and the Beatles of course uh, so there, the influence of of skiffle music is is gigantic especially because of that well-known connection and influence on the Beatles and John Lennon. And Billy decided to write a book about it, which is really interesting, because he wasn't even born when Skiffle was happening. So it wasn't like a direct connection. He just thought it was a cool story. And the book is amazing. He's done some really deep research into the history of Skiffle, how it came from North America, and sort of the background of the railroads and what was going on in America at the time. Anyway, go read it. It's really cool. It's called Roots, Radicals, and Rockers. So get that. Also, his latest couple of records are really deep, rich, beautiful recordings. Again, the Joe Henry connection. Joe has produced a couple of things recently for Billy. One of them is an excellent record called Tooth and Nail that I think that was their first collaboration together. It's a beautiful record. It's just a really interesting progression of an artist into kind of a new sound and direction and approach to writing and singing that seems to be coming from a a different place than some of his earlier recordings were. So go check that record out. They also did this cool album called Shine a Light a couple of years ago where they did all these traditional kind of bluesy railway songs and they traveled on trains across the states and got off at various stations and recorded the record in train stations. And you can hear the trains going by and the conductors yelling and all this stuff. It's great. I'm not going to give you a history lesson on Billy Bragg. He's made some incredible records. I got to kind of know him, or his music anyway, through seeing him at at festivals over the years. And what I always dug about seeing him was that you could really tell that he kind of came from the street like he the way that he projected and the way that he played he was super aggressive and and you could tell that he'd really worked that from from just really starting from scratch and figuring out how to you know make yourself heard above you know whether it's on the street or in a punk rock club he was sort of a one-man wrecking crew and he he would he would perform under the name spy versus spy and he had like a portable pa system that he'd kind of strapped to his back and he played this really kind of raunchy guitar style that i love um really kind of gnarly guitar sound and he would just write these really politically charged songs and it just had this really great do-it-yourself punk rock ethic that you can really kind of relate to today in today's musical climate Anyway, he went on to have a lot of commercial success as well. He had a a number of hits throughout the years, songs like Sexuality, and there's a song called A New England that was uh, a hit for Kirstie McCall. So he's had his fingers in all that. And then a, a big project in the last 20 years has been this whole thing that I'm sure a lot of you know, where he has collaborated with Wilco and Nora Guthrie, Woody Guthrie's daughter. And she has opened up the vaults of Woody Guthrie's extensive lyric writing, turned them over to Billy and let him sift through them and curate them and bring them into the recording studio. And Billy wrote some music for the lyrics that were there provided by Woody Guthrie, which is amazing. So he collaborated with um, Wilco on three volumes of music that are called Mermaid Avenue, Volume 1, Volume 2, Volume 3. Okay, if you need any sort of crash course on Billy Bragg, Go listen to Life's a Riot. That's the first Spy vs. Spy record that he made in the early 80s sometime. Talking with the tax man about poetry is awesome. Plus all that new stuff I just mentioned. Go feast your ears on some Billy Bragg. Oh, and one last thing before we get going here, since we're talking about Woody Guthrie, since I'm talking about Woody Guthrie, I want to let you know I met this person at a festival I played at last weekend, and she runs the Woody Guthrie Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma, And man, this place looks so cool. I have not been there, but it's become very high on the list of places that I want to visit. She totally sold me on it, told me all about it. Uh, Go look at the website for the Woody Guthrie Center. If you find yourself anywhere near the area, or if you live anywhere near the area of Tulsa, Oklahoma, do yourself a favor and go and check that place out. All right then, let's do this. Here is this month's episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I just wanted to say I've been reading your book. I, I picked it up about three or four days ago, and man, I just love the book so far I'm not all the way through it so don't, don't.
1: um no don't wish don't wish to be rude Steve which book Oh, the Roots, Radicals, and Rockers one. Oh, okay, cool. That's my third book. It gets a bit confusing.
0: Oh, okay. So I'm not too up on your writing history then, because uh, this is the first one I've read of yours, and I'm just blown away by the historical detail side of it. I was wondering if we could just talk a little bit about that, because... Um, sure.
1: No worries. I mean, you know, give you, uh, you know, with respect, it's the, it's the first one to be published in America, so okay, it's understandable you might not have heard the other two. So yeah, could you tell me a bit about like
0: just the historical detail side of it? Is so gripping and and in depth. Um, is that the first nonfiction you've written?
1: No, no. The first book I wrote uh, was called The Progressive Patriot, which was about uh, something nefarious that we call Englishness <laughs> and what it what it means and what you know why I feel I'm a patriot myself, although I'm a person of the left. Yes. A second book was um, uh, an annotated uh, lyrics book about thirty thousand words of of me explaining what some of the lyrics to the songs were about. Okay, and the Skiffle book is the is the third. So the whole Skiffle thing, like that's
0: kind of like a like the generation before you was like the the one that got caught up in the Skiffle craze. So what was what's your connection to the whole Skiffle thing? Like, is that something you were really into as a kid? Like you were growing up in the seventies and and 60s and 70s and the skiffle had already ended by then so what's your connection
1: yeah i was born in peak skiffle 1957 so oh, okay. I, I was completely missed the whole thing yeah but my connection is punk rock okay and you know, so, you know it's 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 almost the same thing as skiffle just 20 years later yeah. uh, and with better hair with better haircuts
0: <laughs> no.
1: and and much much better guitars but um having um lived through punk rock as a, a music that was fundamentally do-it-yourself, self-empowering, rejecting the mainstream, I, the more I learned about Skiffle, the more I realized it was very, very similar to, to what I had experienced, the same sort of things, the, the DIY, the, yeah. the, the, the turning their back on what was being handed to them by the BBC, the, right. um, the self-empowerment aspect of it you know you don't you don't need to be a musician to play music thing you know a trained right. musician anyway um so all those kind of things were were i experienced during punk and I, I i thought that skiffle has such little respect in the uk that really perhaps it should be as respected as punk rock so why don't i try and explore that and see if i can make a case uh, for that argument don't spoil the ending <laughs>
0: <laughs> even though, because uh, I oh, haven't you got...
1: Gotten... You'll never believe where it ends.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, like, but I, I got so caught up, like even in the first chapter, because you start talking about the whole history of um, of Lead Belly and the railroads and all that stuff. Like, where, what kind of in-depth research did you have to do to, f- to dig into all that stuff? Because it's really, like, interesting, and I had no idea about any of that.
1: Well, it's, you know, it's something I'm interested in as, as well. I mean, it was a lot of it was the discovery for me. I mean, the first half of the book really is about the, um, the trad jazz boom in the UK in the the post-war period, yeah. which I knew r- next to nothing about. Really? Um, I had to write an entire chapter about New Orleans jazz and why it's important. Again, not something I knew a huge amount about, uh-huh. um, so it was a it was a journey of exploration for me too and i tried to write it in very much in the perspective of someone coming from a rock and roll background and don't um imagine that anybody reading this knows anything about trad jazz because i certainly didn't okay so so when i when i'm talking about um the the key impulse of trad jazz um as it was uh popular in the UK was a rejection of the mainstream uh, jazz music of the day, which, which broadly speaking was swing. Yeah. So it was big bands, crooners, and uh, a lot of, uh, you know, guys in the UK felt that was somehow divorced from the original spirit of jazz. And that spirit had remained in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. So they, they, wanted to get back to that um, kind of raw, original sound that jazz had, that exciting sound from the first uh, decade of the 20th century, uh, because they believed that the, the the mainstream stuff was, you know, was overblown. So in in many ways, they were doing exactly what the Ramones were doing in 1974, 75, yeah, when they were it, looking at... It really when sounds, they were sounds looking familiar. At, um, yeah, when they were looking at mainstream guitar rock and thinking it was bloated and you know totally divorced from what had gone before, they went back to basics in order to to you know renew the spirit of guitar music in my country. Uh, Doctor Feelgood did more or less the same thing, right? And they both of the both the Ramones and Doctor Feelgood were precursors of punk. So you know that that. Uh, perspective was absolutely crucial to me trying to explain trad jazz and the importance of trad jazz and how it led to skiffle to an audience that had grown up on guitar rock like I had.
0: Right. And were you like, were you exploring them that music and stuff? Like had you got into lead belly and stuff? Like I know probably through your Woody Guthrie uh, in depth um, diving, you've probably come across a lot of lead belly, but was it something that you were exploring as well at the time? Like, because he's he well, plays was a big role. yeah I was
1: kind of, I was kind of up to speed on on Leadbelly Belly, I okay. think. Yeah. Um but it, really the 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 way I wrote the book, I actually wrote the first chapter last. Oh, okay. And writing in terms, I started at chapter uh chapter 2 with uh Bill Collier being the godfather of skiffle. Yeah, he's an
0: interesting sounding character in that
1: whole he's thing He's a with, very interesting character. Yeah. But so when I when I when I'd um <clears throat> written the, 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 the book I had to go back to the start to try and set the scene uh-huh. and in order to do that I, I, I felt I had to write some biographical detail about Lead Belly yeah. why he was an important figure in because I, I would argue that Lead Belly is the greatest folk singer America ever produced mm-hmm. because he's the kind of nexus for so many different styles of music to call him a, a, a blues man is to really uh, undersell what he did totally uh, and he is right on the cusp between being known and being unknown where folk music becomes something that we, we you know we have no idea of and then in 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 the story of the song rock island line and where it came from there's a really interesting story there about how a song becomes a folk song a song that was originally written by a guy whose name we know for a purpose we know suddenly 20 hardly 20 years later Is being recorded as a prison work song, in inverted commas, uh, in uh, in, uh, Arkansas. So that was a really interesting story there, I felt, to tell that story. And then on top of that, so many people know uh, the song Rock Island Line, but very, very few people, myself included, before I wrote the book, know actually where Rock Island is and why it was significant in the history of American Railroad. Where they first built a bridge across the Mississippi.
0: Yeah, you had me looking at Google Maps on that because I was like, "Man, that sounds like a cool place." <laughs>
1: yeah. So, so it's really it's really about archaeology. You know, you kind of you kind of hit a vein, yeah. and you just keep following the clues that have been left there by people like Lead Belly and John A. Lomax and um, the people who did the uh, you know uh, the research into the the uh, songwriting uh, at, for the Rock Island Railroad itself. Yeah. And then and then the history of 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 Rock Island because, you know, I, I came to the conclusion in, in the writing of the book and, and in, in, um, looking at the history of American railroad, that the, the, the way that, uh, the railroad affected America was unlike any other, um, any other invention that, that, that has, has been, you know, whatever the, the, uh, whatever the, uh, cars and airplanes did, they only really built on what the railroads had already started.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating time that's for sure. And I like how with with that song in particular, there's like legend and there's there's kind of like fiction that got added onto it, stuff about the the toll bridge that wasn't actually there and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah, I mean
1: the whole the whole story of the song is uh, is is strange as well, you know, the fact that um <clears throat> it's the first track on Johnny Cash's first record. Yeah. And he sings Lonnie Donigan's version. He doesn't sing Lead Belly's version because Led Belly doesn't have a toll booth in his version. It's Donigan who who first mentions this ridiculous toll booth. There never was a toll booth <laughs> on, a, on American Railroads, by the way. It's a complete invention by Donigan. Right, right. Um, probably because he was trying to make sense of what Led Belly was saying because it's not clear on all the recordings exactly what Lead Belly's talking about when 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 he's describing this discussion that went on. So Donigan assumed that... The way that the train driver had fooled the signalman was by fooling him by not paying a uh, some kind of a fee. Uh-huh. He assumed that. Actually, if you do listen to Led Belly's versions, um, you you can understand that um, <clears throat> the signalman he's asking the train driver to go in the hole, which means in a siding, uh, so that an express train can go by. But if you have livestock, you get exempt for that on animal rights grounds. So that's how the guys fooled him by saying, I've got all livestock. And then right. say, so he says, you can carry on. And then he says, I've got pig iron. It's, I think as he's it, pulling out, ah, sucker might be a pun, might be, maybe he might put a little pun in there by saying pig iron, but, um, you know, so it, and then, and so also that's tied up in, in all this as well, Steve is the kind of way this song has ping ponged them back across the Atlantic a couple of times. And, and the story of, of, um, you know, how African-American roots culture could influence white kids in Britain in 1954, 55 is equally a, a, an untold story. So a lot, of, a lot of the story I was telling hasn't really been properly put into its context in, in my country, never mind in your country. And so that's what I was trying to do. I don't think you can, you can't really, I would argue again, you know, you might, music journalists might disagree with this, but I don't think you can write about music without writing about context.
0: Totally. And I mean, Lonnie Donegan, to me, like as a music fan, was always just kind of a footnote of the Beatles story. Like he, there's never like been something that really talked about him and his like what made him come out in in that era and that time and be as popular as he was.
1: Well, exactly. That's the problem. All the all the references to um, Skiffle and Donegan in the literature are all in the context of 1960s British rock stars. Right. And they have a couple of pages in their biography uh, to explain, just to explain what Skiffle is and Donegan. But but all those writers, probably through, you know, save time and all that, all the understandable reasons, treat Rock Island Line and Lonnie Donegan uh, having a hit with it in 1955 as a singularity. It just kind of happened out of nowhere. One of the things I'm most proud of in the book is that Rock Island Line doesn't get in the charts till chapter 13. In a right. twenty-six chapter book, in the middle <laughs> of the story, so yeah. that's um, I mean, that was a happy accident, but I'm really pleased about that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, as a kid growing up when you did, were you aware of American folk music, or were, were you just sort of focused on what was going on in Britain at the time?
1: Depends what you call folk music. Well, I like, mean, I, I initially I, I I listened to a lot of singer songwriters. I was a big, uh, but I was. Uh, t- 11, 10, 11, I really got into Simon and Garfunkel. Bridge Over Troubled Water came out that year and was all over the radio, particularly the boxer. Oh, yeah. And through through listening to that, I kind of got into Bob Dylan by the time I was about 13 years old. And then from Bob Dylan, I tried to start finding records by this guy named Woody Guthrie, but that wasn't easily done in Britain in the mid-70s. It was very hard to find Woody Guthrie records. I eventually found a a... a, a cassette of the Dust Bowl ballads, but it was on a French label and I couldn't read the sleeve notes. Um, So it wasn't until I came to America in 1984 for the first time that I was able to, you know, go into a record shop and buy a Woody Guthrie record and likewise a Leadbelly record. So I was aware of it because if you listen to them enough, um, American singer-songwriters from the sixties and the seventies—you learn Woody's song and Leadbelly's songs by osmosis.
0: Sure, and and, Dil- and Dylan actually mentions them in song too, right? Yeah, so. not just
1: Dylan, but I mean, you listen to someone like Ry Cuda singing, you know, Bourgeois Blues, Vigilante mm-hmm. Man, totally Arlo, uh, all those guys, uh, Rambling Jack, uh, nearly all of them cover a, uh, and, and the English singer songwriters too, you know, show their respect to those artists by covering their songs. So you just kind of like learn them like, you know, it's like mother's milk really.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And were you, but you were aware of like Ray Cooter's records and his versions of, of those <laughs> tunes.
1: I was, yeah, okay. I was very aware of of Raikuda. by by the, the sort of mid seventies. I'd kind of connected with that kind of music quite heavily.
0: Okay, and and that stuff was readily available, I guess, right? Like it was. Yeah, it was.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would hear that you'd hear it on the radio, or you'd see them on old Gravel's or test, or older friends would play the records to you. Right, and also I had I had a job in a in a in a record store as well, so the guys in the record store would play me stuff. Okay, because I was quite
0: young. Right, right. When you were a kid growing up, what's the te- what's the part of of London that you grew up in?
1: I grew up in one of the eastern industrial suburbs. It's called Barking, B A R K I N G. Right,
0: okay. And so, was there music around the house and stuff? Like, did you? Not really. It- no,
1: we didn't. We didn't have a record player when I was growing up. Uh-huh. My my parents. Uh, recognized that i was getting into music listening to the you know the pop radio in the mornings before i went to school yeah um and so they they bought me in 1969 a a domestic reel-to-reel tape machine oh cool i guess they figured that if they bought me a reel-to-reel machine and a couple of tapes i wouldn't have to keep shelling out for singles which is pretty smart
0: (laughs) so you would just sit there and like record the radio
1: Record the radio, but also I would go and visit friends who had older sisters who had great record collections. Oh yeah, and to me a great record collection would be Tamla Motown chartbusters albums. Uh huh. And um, this would be 1969, so a lot of sensitive uh, young uh, teenage girls tended to have some Simon and Garfunkel records. Okay. So I taped all the entire back catalogue of Simon and Garfunkel off my friends' elder sisters. Yeah. And uh, Motown Chartbusters volumes uh, three to f- six or seven in the <laughs> same way, and they became the, the the basis of my my music fandom. So
0: Motown Chartbusters being literally like a greatest hits of Motown kind of thing. Yeah,
1: basically, yeah. Every every year Motown will compile their singles and put them out in the UK. Okay. Um, and so they were they were uh, you know just. Just brilliant records. Smokey Robinson, and The Miracles, uh, Tracks of My Tears on Volume Three, along with uh, Road Runner by uh, Junior Walker and the All Stars. Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, they were just great, great records. And um, <clears throat> you know, they—they they, it was weirdly that was how I got some of my politics as well, which is a kind of strange uh, uh, occurrence. Because what happens is by the time you get to Volume sort of five or six, yeah. The the Jackson Five are giving way to Edwin Starr singing War, right? And and you know, the Supremes are giving way to Ball of Confusion by the Temptations. Something's yeah. happened, something has changed, and the, and the clue is in the record because also on that same volume is Abraham Martin and John by uh, uh, Marvin Gaye. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King has been assassinated, uh, uh, Robert Kennedy has been assassinated, and the uh, 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 African American pop culture is reflecting that. Uh, all the way through to uh, to Tamla Motown.
0: Yeah, it is really a heavy time in that kind of music, and and the the you're right. Like just it, the couple of years between some of the early, I guess you'd call it lighter fare, really did make way for some of that. Like that Marvin Gaye stuff is so heavy.
1: Yeah, um, but very powerful as well. And when you're sort of 11, 12 years old, trying to make sense of this, you're kind of picking up the idea that that music should say something more than just "I love you."
0: You're right. Right. Was that stuff kind of inspiring you to want to play music or did you not really think of it that way?
1: Well, I was already writing songs by that time, although I couldn't play anything. I was just, I I sort of did, I was one of those kids who was told to write, write poetry at school for homework and never stopped. Okay. I don't know why all my mates stopped, but I never stopped. So I was kind of writing songs, but not being able to play an instrument, I have to keep the tune in my head from the age of about 12, 13.
0: Okay, so you the, you were actually considering them to be songs. It wasn't just poetry. Yeah, I was. Poetry, yeah, yeah, yeah definitely could... songs. Yeah, there, there okay. was no
1: context in my life for poetry. Uh huh. Um,
0: and did you did you get a guitar at some point around that time, or did you have to wait?
1: No, nobody stands in front of the mirror in their bedroom reading poetry. <laughs> well you said. Know? Yeah, it's it's really simple. Um, I did get a guitar when I was sixteen. Um, when I left school, my father um, took me down to the town to buy me a a sort of 16 pound cost a a uh, a nylon strung spanish style guitar Um, and the reason why i wanted a guitar was i could hear through the wall of our back room the kid next door playing his electric guitar and he was a couple of years younger than me his name was wiggy and he taught me to play guitar that summer he taught me how to play the Rod stewart songbook Oh, cool! And ha- yeah. so, was he? Was he a little older than you? No, younger. He was two years younger than me. But he was about five. He was about five years better than me at guitar. <laughs> nice. Always, he still is. <laughs> yeah, he's been a, a mainstay in your career, right
0: from right from day one. It sounds like I played. I played a gig with him ten days ago. Wow, that's incredible! Um, and uh, so, did he actually like sit down and teach you how to play, or did yep. you just pick things? He up? He did.
1: He showed me where to put the fingers. Yeah, all that. Uh huh.
0: So you were picking up basic guitar chords and and putting all that together yeah uh, and what kind of songs were you learning like what what lent itself to that um kind of level that you were well at? the
1: thing about rod stewart is he, he he recorded a lot of bob dylan songs he recorded a lot of uh um uh you know soul songs so his yeah. songbook was pretty good and then you could go up to uh, the west end of london and there'll be um there would be places you could go, bookshops that only sold uh, 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 music, songbooks. Uh And so we got a Bob Dylan songbook home and found that almost all Bob Dylan songs were C, F, and G7. Very handy. Almost all of them. And so, you know, I'm talking about his early stuff now. I'm talking about his, you know, sort of pre... um, Pre Pre-wheeling, stuff like that. Yeah, the stuff I really liked. I was was turned on to Dylan by uh, the album, The Times Are Changing. Which to me was the most raw thing I ever heard um and uh just like it was you know coming from a from the Stone age, it just blew my mind so um those were the kind of songs I really wanted to play so these those songs are are relatively straightforward to play they're actually three or four chord songs, yeah yeah uh, or can be played in that way in a way that makes them sound like you're playing the song properly so uh, those were the those were the, and so when I wrote songs when I when me and Wiggy wrote together we tended to write songs that sounded a bit like a Bob Dylan song or a bit like a Rod Stewart and the Faces song for yeah, a long so the, time.
0: The Faces kind of like I consider them to be sort of precursors to punk rock in a way. Like they were pretty edgy. Uh,
1: they were they were edgy, but they were also uh, they were also great songwriters. Ronnie Lane was an amazing songwriter. Ronnie Lane, yeah, uh, Ronnie, Ronnie Wood was a great guitar player as well, still is. And if anything, it was the, it was the Faces that me and me and Wiggy really uh, kind of bonded over because he absolutely loved the Faces. He okay. liked Rod Stewart, but he really loved the Faces, and he and he kind of his whole uh, image and his style of guitar was all based on on uh, Ronnie Wood. Nice. Whereas, whereas I really loved Ronnie Lane and Lane's subsequent solo uh, records with Slim Chance. I really still the only CD that never leaves my car is a Ronnie Lane CD. Really? Because I know I know any time of day I can put it on and it will just change my mood. I actually don't know that album. I'm surprised. No, no, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty obscure. He made three or four solo records in the in the mid '70s, and they're all just they're kind of like a very interesting sort of English country and western kind of thing. So it's not cowboy songs, but it's uh-huh. kind of in that in that same space, a very sort of you know uh, pastoral kind of. Nobody else has ever managed to do it, really. It's just amazing, amazing music, and it has a lot of. Yeah, it's a bit like a, a, if you imagine Ooh La La, yeah, and then carrying that on. So, did you ever get a chance to see any
0: of those guys? Like in that era, that was like, you know, Ronnie Wood was probably making his own solo records and it was post faces. But did we you We ever... loved
1: those Woody solo records. Yeah, yeah we, man. We, in fact, we we got together um, uh, weekend before last at the 60th birthday of our old keyboard player to play some of the songs uh, that were in my little band, Riff Raff. Uh-huh. Um, and we played some old cover songs as well, and one of them was going to be a, a Ronnie Wood cover, but we never got round to learning it. But uh, but yeah, it still it still resonates with us. Yeah, we saw. I mean, Wiggy saw the Faces. I never saw the Faces. Wiggy saw the Faces. We went to see Slim Chance, Ronnie Lane, Slim Chance. Who uh-huh. else did we go and see? Niels Lofgren. We went to see. We liked him very much with uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Sure. We saw the Small Faces revival. That wasn't very good. No. Uh, you know, yeah, we we were just starting to go and see. But we saw the Who. We saw the Stones. Uh huh. This was all be this would be sort of 75 76
0: and and was the punk rock thing uh happening in London around that time or did it hit a little later
1: well where we lived it hit a little bit later okay I think punk punk rock really was was kind of very local and very much in a, a small <clears throat> clique of people uh uh-huh. who knew each other it wasn't really until the 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 clash went on the white Riot Tour yeah. Uh, in nineteen seventy-seven that it really opened up and we went to see the clash on that tour because they were being supported by the jam and we were we were kind of we'd kind of hooked onto the jam at the time because they seemed to be more working class and they had more of a kind of they seemed to be rooted in the music that we liked from the sixties, you know, the early stones, the early who, yeah, uh, early school yeah. faces.
0: In a way that the clash
1: wasn't? In a way that the clash wasn't. No, I mean the clash um painted words on their clothing. So that was a signal to us that they might be an art school band. Ah, uh, okay. And so that's that kinda... a slightly different thing. That might that mean that might mean that it's all actually just a uh Another. the whole thing is is a joke and okay. they're not really taking it seriously. Okay. Having seen them, however
0: Yeah tell me so tell me about seeing the Clash for the first time.
1: Yeah, we went to the Rainbow and um not only were they amazing live and they blew the jam away, the jam I don't think really were ready to play a venue that large Oh, okay um but uh it was it was the the buzzcocks were on as well the subway sect wicked the prefects some people say the slits were on if they were i didn't see them Uh maybe we got there too late to see them but um yeah the, the, the thing about the clash was they they had all the same moves as the faces and they were kind of using the same sort of dynamic as the stones so it kind of really, we didn't, it hadn't come across on the records. Okay. Uh, so we, you know, the clash, all of a sudden we were totally into the clash. We came back and sold our flare trousers, cut our hair and bought <laughs> plas- plastic leather jackets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or I did anyway. Wiggy kind of stayed looking like Ronnie Wood and he still does. But that's <laughs> easy, you know. Once once you're in there, you're in there. Yeah, man. Yeah. In for the long haul. Uh, yeah, yeah. Do you remember any particular
0: songs that like would have totally blown your mind that night?
1: Which mostly they were, it was the first album was all that was out. So okay. the things that really jumped off that to me were uh, songs like uh, "Remote Control," right, and "Police and Thieves." "Police and Thieves" really was a bit of a, a mind blower to me because uh, they they were somehow a white band playing reggae and it not sounding lame, which is a very hard thing to do.
0: That's a very hard thing to do.
1: But they were doing it by not by not impersonating it, right. by taking it somewhere else, by making it spiky. That's what just blew my mind. That's that's probably the most political track on the whole record Mm -hmm. on the first record. And I would argue is the one that points the way for where punk is going to go. That synthesis of black and white culture. Right. right. Um, was, was, you know, was the seed of it was set with police and thieves.
0: And were you guy like, were you and, and, um, uh, Wiggy starting to play gigs or anything around that time?
1: No, no, no. We were mostly getting together in my mum's back room. Okay. uh, (laughs) So so when did that, when did that turn into the riffraff? Well, in 1978, we all went to – we wanted to go on holiday together. We wanted to go somewhere where we could play our guitars. Uh So we went to this studio in the countryside. Uh, No, 1977, that was. 1977, yeah. And um, it was really great. We just stayed up all week, and they had a little uh, uh, demo studio there, and we just demoed loads and loads and loads of new songs. I wrote loads of new songs. I was starting to write in a more punky style. I wrote wrote a song called I Want to Be a Cosmonaut which had B and F sharp in it, which I'd never ever written a song that had B and F sharp in it. And they were kind of like <clears throat> That's crazy you, you Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was a signal that we weren't going to be playing the G, uh, the, the C, <laughs> F and the G seven anymore.
0: <laughs> um, and so that was your first experience in the studio. Like, was there a producer involved or, or did somebody just set gear up for you and you just went for well, it? There was a guy, the
1: guy who ran the, the, the place, a guy named Bruno Lachlan, he kind of, did, he did quite a good job getting getting us down on tape. Okay, but it was it was the first time we'd been anywhere where people uh, took us seriously as musicians. He and his wife Jackie uh-huh. um, took us seriously, and and at the end of the week, they found us a little gig to go and play all these new songs. Oh, cool! Which like we kind of came back. We went up there as a bunch of blokes who played music, and we came back as a band. Yeah. So who's playing drums on that? A guy named Robert Handley. Okay. He's uh, he's on there. We did it we did a um, an EP for Chiswick in 1978. The name of the band was Riff Raff, and we uh, we we recorded "I Want to Be a Cosmonaut" and a couple of other songs that I'd written. Yeah. And um, these this the, the five guys who recorded that EP were the fellas I was playing with the weekend before last at the Keyboards Players' 60th birthday. No so, way, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, a lot of fun it was.
0: Yeah, yeah, that stuff sounds great. I I, I was checking it out, and um, I mean, it's definitely like in like rough around the edges but it sounds really good and energetic and, and that's that's what it was And
1: it's funny you know when we were playing the songs um, I said we played for an hour so we played mostly cover versions of songs we used to play back then Stones you know Gloria we played uh, you know uh, loads of stuff yeah uh, but when we played the four riffraff songs from the EP there was something different about the whole dynamic of the performance it was almost like we, we sort of – these songs had an intent with them that we still – were still in us. And when we played them, they had an energy, the like of which I I haven't felt, uh, you know, in a band for a long time. It was really interesting. Really? We, were just, we were just kind of playing the, the, the other songs, but these songs we really were – these right. songs still belong to us. Yeah, you were connecting in some way that was – Very much so, uh-huh. very much so. And so it's sort of uh, – it's really surprised me because it is a very long time ago. You know? Yeah, It's kind yeah. of 40 years, 40 years ago. So, that they still, when we played them, we didn't just play them. We really got hold of them and I was like, when we were rehearsing them in the uh, in the afternoon, a couple of times, I was, I just got lost in the reverie of it and I had to, everyone said, are you singing the wrong verse? You sang that verse three times. I'm like, sorry. <laughs> just, just this, is, this is taking me back somewhere I haven't been for a long time. You getting very lost fun. in it.
0: That's awesome.
1: It was great. It was awesome. It was like, wow, you know, we we really meant those songs. We didn't just play them. We meant yeah. them. So that
0: band, like you, you guys had a, sort of a like a like a little deal and stuff, right? Like what happened? Yeah, yeah.
1: No, it's only a one-off deal. You know, it was just a, a nothing big time. You know, yeah. they just. Um, the Runo Lachlan, the guy who uh, ran the studio in the countryside, was a friend with a record label, so they recorded us and they put us out and, you know. yeah. But, uh, you know, if, I, if I'd have never done anything else in music, I would be immensely proud of that, to, to have that record out during punk on Chiswick.
0: Yeah,
1: man. Uh, that would be my, you know, the the sort of thing I stuck on the wall in my house and said, yeah, that was me. I sold <laughs>
0: The next thing that, that I know that happened with you was suddenly you were kind of going by the, you had like a, the moniker spy versus spy. Mm. What brought on that change to, to be more of a solo artist?
1: Riff Raff kind of broke up uh, at the end of 1979. Mm-hmm. And, um, I needed to do something to, uh, press the, uh, eject button on my previous experience as a singer in a punk band. Yeah. So I, I joined the British army. Oh, wow. As a, uh, as a tank driver in the Royal Armour Corps. Really? How was that? Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> I bet. But the uh, trouble is when you've driven one tank, you've driven them all really. <laughs> it's a bit like that. Uh-huh. And, um, one of the reasons I, I there's a number of reasons uh, for it. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I didn't want to be that geezer sitting around in the corner of the pub. It used to be in, a, be in a band. I didn't want to be that person. Um, uh, at the time, a lot, of, a lot of shit was kicking off. and It looked like there might be a World War Three. and I'd rather be there and know it than sitting on my ass at home. Uh-huh. Um, another thing was I, I, I wanted to get rid of this idea that I could ever be a singer-songwriter, and I thought that was a good way of finally killing it because everything had all gone wrong and it was just like you know the absolute antithesis of that existence
0: Uh
1: so that i felt would probably you know sort of you know like like bleach would get rid of this any remnants of that thing but annoyingly it just made me want to write more songs it was really (laughs) inspirational Um, and i just kept getting overcome with ideas for songs while i was there and so i realized that sweating in your tank Well, I didn't really do a huge amount of sitting in the tank. It was mostly just straightforward basic training, really, what I did, basic infantry training. But um, what I realized was that I was going to have to give this one more shot somehow.
0: Before you joined the Army, was, was it pretty impossible to eke out a living doing what you were doing, living in London, or was it kind of easier back then?
1: No, it was just it was just I'd lost control of my fate, really. Yeah. that's what had happened. Okay, and and I'd been that band with those guys all that time. It, the idea of putting together another band and just didn't seem didn't seem to work. So it was during in the army that I, I I I'm kind of sort of proud to say I was quite good at it. All the things they asked me to do, I was really good at it, and they, and they almost made me breast recruit, but I managed to body swerve them by by. <laughs> Leaving before they were able to do that, uh-huh. um, and so when I came out, I was really full of confidence, and I thought, you know, well, I'm just going to do this. I don't really care what anyone else thinks. Uh-huh. I've got these songs. I'm going to yeah. plug in my electric guitar, yeah, and I'm going to get up there and I'm going to do this and see. Let's see what happens. Because if it, you know, it's, it's it's almost metaphorically like fixing my bayonet and having one last charge, having run out of ammunition. Mm-hmm. Right right, and you know and seeing what happens. so <clears throat> you know i spent I spent a year kind of plotting and writing some more songs. I had a new I, I developed a new style of writing that was more um the songs that I was writing were able to be. Uh, played in the sense that the 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 because basically I was the rhythm guitar and riff so I had to sort of push that up a bit and put more dynamic in my playing uh-huh. but basically I I would be doing the percussion with my guitar yep. and the melody with my vocals right. so I had to write songs that worked like that and were were short and sweet and smart and, you know, uh, sort of made me feel like I, I uh, was making a contribution to what was going on at the time. And so that's how I sort of ended up uh, playing solo. I was also a bit of reconnection with the, the sort of Bob Dylan solo thing as well. Yeah, I was yeah. trying to connect with that. And um, what had happened in the meantime while I'd been in the army was that the new romantic movement had become fashionable in the UK. And they seemed to be the antithesis of punk rock to me. So I was I was trying to make music for people who still believed in the ideas of, of punk rock that DIY, you know, uh, no difference between the audience and the and the performer kind of music. I figured that there will always be a minority of people looking for something different, and if I zigged while everybody was zagging, yeah, I might be able, I might be able to find those people. Yeah, and that's what happened. Here's a cool fact.
0: Well, there's certainly like that I can tell. There's nothing. There's nobody else doing that kind of a thing at all. So that that Life's a Riot album, that's just sort of you and that gnarly guitar. Is that pretty much how you were performing?
1: Me, that gnarly guitar and a shitload of echo. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I wanted. To, I wanted. To, I wanted it to sound like the Sun Sessions. Yeah, it kind that's of does, like in a weird like. sort of way. I dig it. Uh, yeah.
0: So what like what kind of what kind of guitar and stuff were you using cuz that I love that sound. What is that? Electric guitar. Yeah, like anything you could get your hands on?
1: No, I had a I had a uh a, a, a copy of a uh Gibson Les Paul Junior made by a company called Arbiter. Oh yeah. Which was a subsidiary of uh Gibson. And what they did was they they used old uh, P90 pickups. So it's an original p P9, nine P90 pickup. Okay. Arbiter made the fuzz face too. Yeah. Oh, that's wicked. Just, I, I, so I, had, I, I just had that, really. No no pedals or anything, just that, and, yeah. and my raw, my bare hands. Yeah. And basically, life, Life's a Riot, it was my then live set. And and uh, a New England is on that album, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, and so that had some success. And you had Christy McCall had a hit with that
1: song, right? Bless her, she did. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Very cool. Uh, were you involved in her version of it at all, or...? Well, I kind of was, yeah, because she came to see me at a gig. She said, I really like your song, uh-huh. but uh, I need another verse, and I need it to be regendered. Right. So she said, uh, I said, yeah, I can do that. She said, we oh, well, come around tomorrow. I'll cook you breakfast, and we'll get to work with it. Oh, really? So I went around and sat there, and while she cooked breakfast, I wrote the extra verse and changed the gender around, so it was all done. She made me bacon and eggs. <laughs> and it was fabulous done deal that's awesome done deal yeah well I mean what what she did to the song was just so amazing I love it so much I still do you know yeah she's fantastic uh, you know it's by grace of Kirsty that most people know me so I'm you know I'll be forever grateful to her and I you know I always play the third verse I never play the two original verses without playing the third verse and I always give a shout out to Kirsty because uh, I, I miss her greatly and and be a lot of her audience were well, my audience too so you know it's, it's our respect. Yeah, yeah. She was working with her husband, then, Steve Lillywhite, who's right. uh, has a rather different approach in the studio to the one I was familiar with. So when it came <laughs> back, it sounded fabulously poptastic. Yeah. I was really, really pleased because it, it proved I could write pop songs. I didn't need to do it myself. Right. Uh, Kirstie, Kirstie uh, proved that, they, that Billy Bragg songs could sound like brilliant pop songs.
0: Yeah. Did that? It, did that kind of influence you to do more stuff like that or not really?
1: Not really. No, okay. I was still a bit shy of that in the, in those days because I think she had the hit in 84 maybe. Uh-huh. It would take a couple of a bit longer. Re- I was really working with Johnny Marr that made me start making a record that sounded anything like what Kirsty did. But although I, I did work with Kirsty, that was the interesting thing. She's singing on, um, uh, talking with a tax man about poetry, she sings on Greetings to the New Brunette.
0: Okay, and and I think I saw her in the video for Sexuality.
1: Is, is that her? She the sings video? on Sexuality as well. She sings quite a lot on that Don't Try This at Home album. Okay, uh, because that was much more you know in her space. I think she sings on Sexuality. She sings on uh, Cindy of a Thousand Lives. Yeah, because um, Johnny Marr was producing a lot of that, and he was you know he was very close with Kirsty as well. Right, you know we were very fortunate to to be able to call on her to come and and sing on tracks, and uh, you know she was so great at it.
0: What was your relation with Johnny Marr like through playing around in the UK at the time? Was he somebody that you'd met there? Yeah, or? I
1: mean, I mean, the Smiths, the Smiths opened a lot of doors for people. You know, a, a guitar band with uh, with sort of brilliant lyrics. So someone like myself, they really did a, a great service because they made it uh, created a space uh-huh. for a songwriter like myself to to make some connections and and you know I was a huge fan of the of the Smiths I just thought they were they, they were brilliant um you know I remember here the first time I heard back to the old house just mm-hmm. the the b-side of this charming man I think and thinking you know they've said it in two verses where it takes me five verses to say in Saturday boy that's really that's really amazing songwriting uh-huh. and so yeah, Johnny was one of those guys who I just connected with, I met him on a few gigs. I opened for the Smiths on their uh, first American tour. Uh-huh. And um, we share a sound man, Grant showbiz, who was their sound man, also was my sound man. So when we got in the studio, uh, Johnny would come down sometimes. Um, John Porter, who produced Talking With A Man, yeah. also produced their first album. So he would also call Johnny over to come play, and he's Johnny's all over Taxman as well. He plays on Greenest to the New Brunette, and he plays the guitar on Walk Away Renee on the B side.
0: Okay. And what was Johnny like as a producer? Like, did you um, did you guys get along great in the studio, and was it an easy process?
1: It was an easy process, but he didn't. He would take the songs away, and then you would and then you'd hear him. Then you didn't. It wasn't like sitting around with him having input. Oh. I mean, when I first wrote Sexuality, it was very clunky okay and he came in with all these lovely chords and then he took it away and he produced it in in such a way that he set the bar for the entire album oh interesting which was both a, which was both a blessing and a and a curse because yeah. we then had to make the record that could live with sexuality and and he, he you know he helped us out he, he produced a few of the tracks on there as well he, i think he did accident wait to happen cindy for a thousand lives yeah Maybe another one as well, yeah. uh, and so he really helped us on there. It was like a collaboration. I really it's one of them I'm not, a, you know, I'm not very much a studio person, but that record was one of the ones I most enjoyed.
0: But for for a lot of it, you weren't there. You mean?
1: No, no, I wasn't there. But we would. I wasn't there for the for the uh, you know the the production aspect of it. I right. was there for the recording and all that. Uh-huh. But then Johnny would go up to Manchester with the tapes. And then we'd, we'd hear, you know, subsequently he'd, he'd send the mixes down and we'd hear it like that. Wow. Whereas with my own producer, I tended to be a bit more hands on.
0: Yeah, yeah. And a lot of your stuff up to that point was pretty stark too. Like, it was, yeah. You were touring around with uh, like in the States and stuff you mentioned with the Smiths and, and I would imagine other bands too. Did you find like how, how was the difference between the UK and the US audiences around that time?
1: Well, it was it was very interesting in the in the U.S. because in in the U.K. people thought of me as a one-man clash, whereas in the in the U.S. people thought of me as a as a new Woody Guthrie. So okay. I had to kind of find out a bit more about Woody Guthrie,
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, buy some of his records, and learn a little bit more about him if I'm if I'm going to be a class. I knew you know I, I knew enough of him because I was into Bob Dylan, so I knew a bit about him, but sure. I didn't really know his you know his actual biography so I had to pick up on a bit of that uh-huh I mean the great thing the great thing for me was that um for a while I was uh, kind of heavily featured in the New Musical Express and in the in the 1980s when college radio was strong a lot of their there was always someone at college radio who was reading the New Musical Express so wherever the Smiths went you know wherever which any radio station that would play the Smiths would also play me
0: and the New Musical Express was that like a weekly rag that yeah. came out yeah Right. It's a weekly
1: yeah weekly paper yeah. Yeah. And it was it was kind of like set the tone really for what was going on in the 1980s. So there was there was five weekly papers in the UK but Enemy was by far and away the most widely read.
0: Okay. So the Woody Guthrie thing obviously you dug into it and checked that out um but could you tell me a little bit about how that all happened how that came together with with Nora Guthrie getting you to <laughs> dig into his lyrics like that's quite a
1: yeah undertaking. That was kind of in the, that that began at the uh, 80th birthday party, Woody's 80th birthday party, um, which would have been in 1992 uh-huh. in Central Park. Uh, it was Arlo, was on, and uh, PC Seeger was on. Yeah. Um, Michael Franti was on as well. Okay. And me and I was on. And. Uh, It was there I first met Nora, and she first talked about these lyrics that her father had, uh, Mm -hmm. that had written, that had no music anymore. Uh And would I be interested in writing some new music from? Now, my immediate thought was, surely this is Bob Dylan's job, not my job. (laughs) You know, I'm not even an American. These guys have all grown up with Woody. But um, she sent me some photocopies of the material, and I I realized how, how strong it was how it wasn't fragments. It was, you know, at the time, I think it was, they had 2,000 complete lyrics. Now they have over 3,000 complete lyrics. Holy shit. So I realized that, that, um, it wasn't like, if I made a record, it wouldn't be like the last few scraps I used up and no one else can have a go. You know, I'd be, I'd just be, you know, chipping a bit away from this, this towering, uh, sort of monument of, of, of songwriting of Woody's unheard songwriting. And also I came to the conclusion that actually being from another country actually helped because it gave me a bit of perspective on Woody. I I didn't grow up with the little guy and I tended (laughs) to see him against the the backdrop of um, American popular culture. Yeah. So I was one I was one step removed from him. Uh huh. And I think it needed someone like that to take it on because it's such a big thing. I mean, I mean, Nora did ask the obvious uh, suspects. She did, and they were they were all very sheepish about it. I think I bet because they realised the the you know this is Woody Guthrie. It's, so it's a big ask. I was a bit more sort of uh, uh, you know open to to getting to understand how I was still learning about him, I suppose you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Nora's encouragement, her generosity, um, when we got to the archives, that she was, you know, open to anything. She didn't really <clears throat> want to, you know, it to be a particular record. Her problem was that she felt her father was becoming a bit uh, two-dimensional and she needed to, someone to record the songs in the archive to challenge the academic idea of who her father was.
0: It's a great idea, really. Um, it's a brilliant idea, and
1: she—you she,
0: know—bless her for thinking up. How did she convince you to do it? Like, surely you didn't just immediately say, "Like, yeah, I'll do it." So, was there any sort of back and forth about how?
1: Oh, yeah, there was quite a bit of back and forth. Yeah, yeah, there was some back and forth, and I went to—I went to uh, went to New York and into the archive and looked in the boxes.
0: Yeah. So, what what form were they in? Like, are they just scraps of paper randomly, or were they books? Or? Yeah.
1: No, no, some well, some of them are in notebooks, but most of them are wraps, scraps of paper uh, randomly, often typed. He was a very good typist, Woody. He did a, he did a uh, correspondence course on typing. Really? It was quite a fast type. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but the interesting thing about it is that many of them are annotated by him that day, what he was doing that day, and what, you know, almost like I'll put this note on you and then stuck it under your hotel door for the morning. <laughs> <laughs> if you're that close to him, I mean, really like he's writing them and then saying, here you go, pass it across the table to you. It really felt very much like that. It didn't feel like some dusty old archive where you're looking back into the Mr. Time. It felt very, very immediate. Wow. And he ha- was very present. He's very, very present in the, he's very present in the, on the page, Woody, in, in the, in the songs. So
0: he would type and then he would handwrite some sort of note about
1: sometimes handwrite, sometimes typewrite, But there would be, you know, uh, uh you know, maybe a, uh, a thought or a paragraph or what he was doing that day, or mm-hmm. some some you know phrases or something at the bottom that talk a little bit about where his head's at
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and it was all it was all a quiz to the mill for me
0: right and how did you start narrowing it down to the ones that you would actually take on?
1: That's rather difficult to explain <laughs> in fact, um you know you start making a part of the good ones and you realize that actually there's a lot of good ones and you make rather the really good ones and there's a lot of them and then you make a part of the exceptional ones and then you think oh dear so you have to go back again and start again <laughs> and try and sit with Nora and say look what about this one and you know how do you feel about this one you know and so and that's how you end up with songs that you wouldn't expect to hear you know right I think that's what Nora wanted she, she didn't want more This Land Is Your Land she wanted something new My, fly, my Flying Saucer Right, right. She wanted Ingrid Bergman. She wanted California Stars. And had she been
0: through it a million times already, or was it? she, no. was she discovering it at the same time?
1: She too was discovering it. There was some that she really, really liked uh-huh. um, that she asked me to write, and I took them away and I couldn't really connect with them. Because then the thing was you took them back to England, and you sat with them and looked at them and tried to connect with them. And some I did and some I didn't. Right. And sometimes it was an immediate process. Other times there was one particular song called Down to the Water, that Nora really really liked because it was more like a poem really but it was about her mother and her elder sister Kathy standing at the beach at Coney Island while Woody went off to war on a boat it's mm-hmm. really 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 beautiful and but it's just straight there's no verse chorus or anything it's just it's probably a uh, something that Woody just wrote down as a stream of consciousness almost yeah it doesn't rhyme right and uh, I looked, I, it was the one, one, of the, one of the ones that was giving me a bit of trouble. And then um, I saw an advert on TV in the UK for Irish Butter, which featured um, Shane McGowan from the Pogues singing um, the old Irish folk song, She Moves Through the Fair. Uh-huh. I don't know if you're familiar with it at all.
0: I don't know that and- song.
1: My loved one came to me. La, da, 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 da. It's a lovely, lovely tune. And I suddenly leapt out of the chair, ran into my office, pulled out the lyrics for, um, go down to the water and sang them all the way through to the tune of, uh, she Moved to the fair. No way. Why? And came back <laughs> and sat next to my missus. And she said, what was that? I said, just, don't worry, we've now got 21 songs for the project. Don't <laughs> worry, it's all cool. So it was like that. It wasn't always like that, you know. Um, but for me, it was it was a, a joy and uh-huh. it was straightforward. Some of them I just didn't connect with the lyrics that Nora, that Nora pulled, but some of them got me straight, straight away. And some that I pulled, I didn't quite get my handle on properly. How, so, yeah.
0: how long would you say the process was between when you took them away and when you actually wrote the music for them?
1: It's hard to, hard to think now. Um, it was just kind of ongoing thing that you know once we decided we were going to do it and we booked the studio yeah. um, you know I mean I mean, the weird thing is that uh, Nora when she came to Dublin we recorded in Dublin Nora bought a dozen more songs oh my god! And I, wrote, I wrote the music for two or three of them yeah that day I mean you know uh, Another Man's Done Gone
0: yeah
1: and I just leapt out the page of me and I just wrote the chords for it and Jay asked me what I was doing, and I showed him how to play it on the piano. Uh I showed him the chords, and he played it on the piano, and it sounded great. And then Jeff came and said, what is that song? And uh, I said, oh, it's this one. And he started singing it, and I knew immediately that he he was going to sing this one because he just put so much into it. It obviously really connected with him. So although I'm not actually playing on the record, I am showing the chords to Jay on the guitar. I'm standing with my guitar neck, in front of the keyboards, <laughs> so Jay can see it, showing him, because they're slightly weird chords. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're diminished chords and stuff like that, and he's following my hands and playing He was that kind of guy. Wicked. He's following my hands and playing it on the piano, and just got his eyes closed, and he's standing opposite us, uh-huh. singing, it, singing it on the mic. The terrible thing is, though, I told the uh, the filmmaker we wouldn't be doing any more recording that night. Oh, sorry. So she went home, and then she came back in the morning. She was not very up. Uh, happy so we restaged it without me so in the film it's jeff and jay but in the actual Ah, recording it was all three of us that's amazing um
0: and how did the whole thing with wilco come about like who whose idea was it to bring them in on the project
1: that was my idea okay
0: were they a band that you had played with around the stage i knew
1: knew jeff i'd done some shows with uncle tupelo oh okay and uh i i really uh i got really got on with jeff Mm -hmm. and um I, re- I I loved the, uh, being there. Had just come out. That was the most recent Wilco album. Yeah. And the great thing about being there is it had so many styles on it. Right. And and um, Nora wanted to uh, to make a record with lots of different folk singers. She had a list of and she went through the list and said, you know, so and so could sing this song, so and so could sing that song, so and so. No, look. The, the whole point of this record is to get the little guy up front. And if you're going to have a different person singing every song, we're going to lose him.
0: Yeah, it's going to be become about the personality yeah. more
1: than. It's the... got to be about got to be about Woody. It's got to be about Woody. Let me make the record, okay? I've got an idea how to do this. Let me make the record. You can choose the title, which you kind of did. You can choose the sleeve, which you kind of did that as well. <laughs> you can even choose the songs that you don't like, and we'll keep them off. But let me make the record because I've got an idea how to do this. And uh, so I went to see Will They played at the Hammersmith Odeon. Yeah. At the end of the uh, being there tour, and um they'd just been in Ireland for a couple of days in Dublin, and they were saying how much they really liked Dublin. So I said, look, you know, we can we can record in Dublin. I don't think it's fair that I should have to come to Chicago or you should have to come to London. Why don't we meet somewhere halfway? You know, not literally, but you know, halfway-ish. Uh, um, and in Dublin, And because it's so close, I'll come home at the weekend to see my family. You can have, you know, you can spend your weekends carousing in Dublin. And I think that was probably what sold it to him in the end. That was the, <laughs> you know, because they they I, I knew that Jeff Tweedy would understand the opportunity offered to us by by Nora to collaborate with one of the great founding songwriters of the of the American tradition. Yeah. and Jeff understood it straight away. You didn't have to tell him twice. You know, he got it.
0: So they weren't they weren't trepidatious about the undertaking either. But I don't, you know. By the time I left the
1: Hammersmith Odeon, I, I felt I'd convinced them, and, and I and I never had to go back and convince them again. So I guess um, any trepidations they had, they they overcame. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah I you know, I mean, they did an incredible thing. You've got to understand where where they were when we were recording. They had demoed Summer Teeth. Okay. So they they cut off from Summer Teeth to come and make Mermaid Avenue with me, yeah. And then went back and made Summer Teeth. I mean, it's an incredible. When I think about it, it's an incredible feat, just sticking an an entirely different project right in the middle of your main yeah. project. Yeah. Yeah. It's an incredible thing to do, and uh, you know, and particularly with it when you when you think of the leap between being there and Summer Teeth as well. It's huge. Yeah. It's a huge leap, and they were in that transition when Mermaid have Mermaid Avenue happened, so. You know, I uh, respect to him for for doing that.
0: Totally. And was there s- there was some kind of thing that happened like with the finished product that you felt wasn't? It wasn't the
1: finish, it wasn't the finished product. It was the um, the deal the deal that we agreed among ourselves as friends, not anything written down, was that whoever wrote the song would produce it. So the songs that okay. Jeff and Jay wrote, they would take back to Chicago and they would produce. Mm-hmm. And the songs that I wrote, we would produce in London, me and Grant, Jobis the producer was the overall producer for the record. Yeah. When that was all agreed and there was never any disagreement while we were in Dublin recording at all. Mm -hmm. Everything was sweet as a nut. It was only when we went home and then Wilco said that they wanted to produce the whole record that that's when things started to get a little bit difficult. Ah, okay.
0: Because, you know,
1: Jeff had never had a record produced by somebody else. I'd never had a record produced by somebody else either. I think Uh it might have come a little bit out of that. So yeah. there was a little bit of, you know, this isn't weird, guys, you know, come on, let's not mess around now. And whatever um, problems arose between us arose out of that. Uh, and, I'm, and I say whatever because I'm not absolutely sure what the, the cause of it was. Uh-huh. But it was, it was me and, you know, we, it, it fell the way we agreed it. Me and Grant right. produced some of the songs that Jeff's singing on, because he, he sang Another Man's Done Gone, I wrote that. Um, they wouldn't let me sing Joe DiMaggio. Because it, because it was about baseball, so they sang it.
0: <laughs>
1: um, but I produced, I, we produced that one. Uh-huh. So yeah, that went that went down. And um, you know, had had Kim not put it in her film, no one would have known about it, and you know, it wouldn't be an issue yeah. because it was one of those things that went on for probably like a week. Yeah, and it wasn't really that big a deal, and it didn't really end up having a, a detrimental effect on the record or. I would argue our relationship because when we come to make volume two, um, which was like a few years later or a year or two later. Okay. Because I'd been on the project for a long time before them. I had a lot more songs. Uh I would say of the original sessions, two thirds were my songs and a third, or it might even be three quarters and a quarter, but something that sort of, you know, if, if Wilco didn't really like me, they could easily have said, you just, you know, fill it up with your songs, Bill, and just put it out. Don't, you know, we don't want to work with you anymore. Uh-huh. But what they actually said was, is it okay if we go in the studio and record some more songs? And yeah. I said, yeah, sure, of yeah. course. And they said, do you want to come over while we're doing it? I said, no, it's not It's not an issue, really. I mean, you weren't around when I did some of my recording. It's not that, that an issue. And they come up with the tracks, I would argue, that, that make – Volume two, more of a Wilco album, because I think Volume one is a bit of a more leans towards more towards me. But yeah, I'd agree with that for sure. Volume two, because now they've made Summer Teeth, they're in a different place. So it's like um, you know, remember the Mountain Bed, someday, some morning, sometime. You know, these amazing, spacey tracks. They didn't need to do that if they, you know, if they'd got so upset to the extent of the the um the way the project had unfolded. They could have easily have said you know we're not really interested and we could have still put the album out with the spare songs that eventually went on volume three uh, but they didn't they they engaged they engaged with me um, you know
0: yeah couldn't have been that bad
1: yeah and, I, <laughs> and you know more power to them because I think it, it made volume two a, a different feel record because of what because of the what they brought to it the the post summer teeth sound they brought to it which really is, is just you know just something else altogether. And that's what you wanted. You didn't want to feel the second album was the scrapings because it wasn't. My only real regret was that we didn't get to tour together. But that's more because we were both of us in different cycles with our touring and record making. You know, I went to Tillmerman Avenue while they were making Summer Teeth. Okay. Then I was off the road while they were touring Summer Teeth. So it wasn't you know, it was just we were out of sync with that, and it, and then, and there never was any promised dates that we put together and said we'll do tour and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. There never was that commitment. I mean, I think you know we thought of it both of us maybe as a side project. It didn't quite turn out that way.
0: Right. Yeah. It was a that was a big deal that when it first came out, I remember, and such a an important piece of American music history too.
1: I think everybody was surprised. You know, I think uh, um, really Gr- Graham Marcus. Crow Marcus hit the nail on the head when he said it was greater than the sum of its parts. Uh-huh. It was greater than me and Wilco and Woody. We'd all uh, somehow the, the the space. And I, I think there's only one person to blame for that. And her name's Nora. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, you, it was you, her, her vision, her generosity, her curation, her uh, commitment to having her father's voice heard that inspired us all to, to, to make that great record. Do
0: you, do you keep in touch with her and is there any plans to do more stuff at all?
1: We were talking the other day. We were talking about it being the twentieth anniversary this year of wow. us making the record.
0: Yeah. Wow. I can't believe it's twenty years. I
1: actually. know. <laughs> I know. It, it's, I'm the same. It's like amazing. Wow. So yeah. Uh, oh yeah. We we. I mean, the, the thing the thing about Nora is, once you do something like that for uh, you're part of the family. Right. So now yeah. when something happens, there's an event on. Um, but now particularly if there's something going on in Europe, she like she'll ask me if I, if if I'm able to go. Mm-hmm. and represent, and if not, she might go. Or if she's, you know, got something really interesting going on in the U.S. that she thinks it would be interesting for me to have my perspective. Because yeah. I have a different perspective about Woody from of course America, American artists, I think. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not bigging myself up here. I think because of my experience, uh, because I'm a, I'm a European and I'm not an American. Yeah. You know, I have a slightly different – I see him from a slightly different angle. And because of the license that I've received from Nora for, and the trust I have with Nora, I'm, you know, I don't mind – Pointing out things that other people don't, you know, might think are contrary to what Woody Woody would might have done himself to suggest those kind of things. So, you know, I think that's why she likes getting me involved in stuff, and I really enjoy doing it. You know, I mean, Woody is the father, the godfather uh, of my tradition, the, the yeah. topical song and tradition, and to be able to have collaborated with him and to be, you know, to to go to Okima, Oklahoma, where they've laid out um, in his hometown, where they've laid out this part, little park. And all of the, the, the stones on the floor are the names of Woody songs. And to see some Merman Avenue songs in there, I can't tell you how pleased that makes me because I want those songs to be synonymous with Woody. They're not my songs. Yeah, yeah. Not Wilco's songs. They're Woody songs. We, ju- we just supplied a, a new frame, if you like, for them, right. you know, so that they could be hung up and everybody could admire them.
0: That's incredible, man. What a thing to be involved in. Yeah. I just wanted to talk to you quickly about um, the Tooth and Nail record. Um, sure. Because to me, I mean, it's a, it, it's not the kind of record that you could have made when you were 21 years old. Uh, Definitely. So I'm just wondering what your experience like uh, was for that session working with Joe Henry and that whole crew and um, how it was different for you and, and what you took out of it.
1: It was the best experience I ever had making an album. Really? Yeah, by far. Partly because it took a week. Uh-huh. Uh, more importantly, though, um, Joe Henry's bedside manner is, uh, is you know, beyond reproach. He was completely in charge of everything there. And he just made one or two suggestions that totally changed the whole process. The first one being don't bring any guitars. Okay. Because normally I'll bring an electric guitar and I lead through the songs with the electric guitar. He said, don't bring any guitars. I'll lend you one of my vintage double O's.
0: Yeah, he's got a few kicking around.
1: He's got some beautiful guitars kicking around there. And, and then the other thing he did was he he dropped the strings down a whole step. On purpose for what reason? To help my voice, because he discerned that my voice had dropped. Okay. And that gave me a lot more confidence in my singing. Interesting. A lot more confidence in my singing.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And then he he didn't let the band hear the songs. Well, I hadn't written all the songs before anyway, so they're box fresh, those songs you know you're here in the third or fourth time we ever played him that i know he likes to work that way that's for sure yeah. did you do it at the house in the basement yeah okay of the uh the garfield house the garfield house indeed yeah uh-huh. and um, it was just great to be with him i trust him implicitly
0: yeah
1: um anyway i mean he'd been saying to me for a while you know we could make an album in a week and i'd kind of got fed up with making records the one before it uh Mr. Love and Justice had taken like eighteen months, not solid, but on and off, start stop. I lost focus. Oh my god, yeah. I got it's probably two records that could have gone out six tracks one year, six tracks the next year. It's really like come yeah, on. Yeah, if you spend that much time,
0: you're you're on a different record by the time
1: you yeah. get to the end
0: of that
1: one. Nobody could remember how much we spent. I'm like, come on, what's going on? You know, it's a great record. I love it. It's got some great tracks on it, uh-huh. but I, the experience for me wasn't wasn't very engaging. I didn't find you know it was a bit of a chore. Yeah. Um, Partly because I've made so many records, I'm you know I'm sort of been there, done that. But Joe was a completely different experience, know I, I really it really challenged me. Yeah, it enthralled me, it engaged me. And uh, did you find any part of the process particularly
0: difficult? Being in in the room with those guys and like doing it all live, like he would have wanted you to.
1: No, I didn't feel. I, I thought they were very conducive. Those guys. Um, the way he had it set up, I was in a sound room in a okay. in a booth um with my guitar and the only person i could see was jay Uh bellarose and that was great because i could lead with jay with my eyes i didn't need to be leading with the guitar now i could give jay a sort of wave of the guitar when it's up or down you know and he would he's very sympathetic yes he is you know um i've I've
0: made some records with him and it's quite the experience
1: uh, really, an experience, a great experience. I mean, you drop an eye, an eyebrow, pff, he's in. You he know, exactly what you're saying. So, so yeah, I felt very, very comfortable with those guys. They're, they're, you know, they're very personable. Yeah. Um, you know, Ryan, uh, the the engineer again. You know. Yeah, he's incredible. Uh, he's incredible. Did a great job on uh, Shine a Light as well. Right. Uh, yeah. Out on the road, you know, setting up, designed the whole rig. That we had to allow us to do that. So, yeah, I mean. It's kind of, it's Joe's world, and, and I was absolutely privileged to to be invited in for a week to be able to make a record that was better than I ever imagined it might be. I mean, I, you know, there's a chance I was just going to go to Los Angeles and make some really expensive demos
0: <laughs>
1: in the back of my mind, you know. And, and, the, and the thing Joe did, which was, which was kind of like exquisitely painful for me, was he didn't let me come home with anything. Oh, okay. Just leave it with us. Yeah. We'll email them to you. We'll email them to you mm-hmm. when we're as we're mixing them. So about ten days later, around sunset UK time, there'd be a bing in my inbox and there'd be another track. Right. I can remember the first one coming through and I can remember thinking to myself, there is no way this is gonna be as good as I remember it. And it was. Yeah. And a- you know, it elicited it elicited responses from people that I'd worked with for years that were just brilliant. One of them said, "Oh, I never knew he could sing," <laughs> which I just thought was so brilliant. I that was so thanks, brilliant. asshole. I was so pleased about that. Whenever I hear it, that was off the the top of the first track as well. So whenever I hear that now, when I when I play the record, I always think in my head, "Geez, this guy can sing." There, there but is it was a job, you know, it was Joe's uh Joe's perception of uh, where my voice was which i hadn't really thought about much i'm not much of a technical singer you may notice
0: i i well yeah i mean that that's not your thing but but there is a <clears throat> there is a quality i'm not
1: much of a technical musician either you may notice that <laughs> i mean basically i'm a communicator totally in a way that joe is as well i think Joey's in a similar way uh-huh. it's like that and i think he was able to to realize that with a little bit a little bit of adjustment a little bit of thought about that rather than let me come in the studio and sort of everyone sit around waiting for me to say what's happening yeah if that's i right. if i would be willing to you know just for you know just for 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 a week to relax that idea and and be allow joe to put me in places where i hadn't been before we might be able to do something amazing and and that's what happened that's what you know that was his yeah. promise That's what he delivered.
0: I love that. That that it's like the idea of of just you jumping into his world because that's totally what it is.
1: Well, certainly his basement. (laughs) It's kind of his world, isn't it? When you go down there, there it is, everyone's sitting around there, and he's it's you know it's his guys and his 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 world and his coffee. Brilliant, brilliant coffee as well. Ah, nice. Um, That helps.
0: Um, do, you, do you guys have plans to do more stuff? Where, like, I know the Shine a Light project was was really cool. That was a couple of years ago when you did the train stations and stuff. Yeah, uh, is that? Oh, some...
1: I, I, you know, one of the great things about Joe is that uh, he gets interesting projects and in, and and invites interesting people to do them. So, I think it's only a matter of time before either he or I can get asked to do something that we think the other one might be a really brilliant um, facet of, and we we might be able to to do something together again, you yeah, know, Yeah. it's, you know, I've been, I've been trying to work with, with Joe for years. Oh yeah? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've known him since the 1980s. Oh really? And, and yeah. And <clears throat> I sort of, it was great that we made the record together, but I kept saying to him, Joe, but yeah, I want to actually, you know, go out on the road with you and make a record with you in that. And that's, so when, when, um, uh, uh, the idea of shine a light came up in the context of writing the skiffle book, Joe's, uh, uh, obvious, candidate.
0: Yeah. He literally took you up on that idea of, 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 I
1: mean, well, you know, he was someone who, you know, had great appreciation of roots material. Yeah. Real, uh, deep, deep, um, understanding of, uh, uh, American cultural history in its context that we would be dipping into. And also, you know, wasn't someone who was precious in the studio. I mean, he'd made an album where he allowed the sound of the street to, to, you know come onto the records i knew that on this this you know we would be trying to take people on the journey by picking up the sounds of the of the railroad as we went along and and that we would be interrupted and there would be times when we were singing and things would happen and he was totally cool with that yeah in fact you know, we, ryan ryan uh put together a four-way mic stand so that we were miking up not just joe and i left and right but uh, east and west as well, um, what was going on around us, which you can hear on the record. And, and I think that, that adds to the whole idea of the journey. Yeah, totally. Yes. So
0: was the process really quick? Like you pull into a station, Ryan would set the mics up, and you would go? Or was there was it
1: relatively quick? Um, one of the things that um, is interesting on, on uh, the American Railroad uh, west of the Mississippi is that there are very few passenger trains anymore. Right. In fact, um, when we were on the Texas Eagle, between uh, Chicago and San Antonio, we were the only passenger train that day. Really? And between San Antonio and L.A., we were the only passenger train for every other day. So what happens is the majority of railroads in America now is freight. So unlike in Lead Belly's time, when you had to give way to the passenger trains, now passenger trains have to give way to freight.
0: Okay, so there's a lot of like stopping and pulling over kind of thing.
1: Well, what they do is they when they go to a, a large, uh, you know, a city with where there's more than one platform, they pull the train into the station and hold it there for forty minutes, uh-huh. and use it as a siding. But it also allows people to get off the train and buy a coffee and smoke a fag and, you know, <clears throat> make a reference. song, <laughs> yeah. Make, yeah, record an album, yeah. So <laughs> when I when I understood that, that, that's that's how the genesis of the program. Happened. I was down in Little Rock on a, on another project, and we went to see the the uh, the midnight train uh-huh. come into Little Rock railway station. Uh, and it came in. It just sat there for twenty minutes, and I'm like, "Well, why, why isn't it leaving?" And the guard explained to me the wait times. I'd look at the the. It was actually the Texas Eagle going up towards Chicago that uh-huh. we saw, and um, he explained to me the wait time. And I had a look at their um, schedule online and realised that there's the opportunity here to to do some recording on the train and also providing you make sure that the porter knows you're getting back on.
0: Right. Uh,
1: you know, he's make sure that you get that, that third call, the last all aboard that actually merely means all aboard.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. And so we were able to do that. We didn't, you know, it wasn't like the train stopped for four minutes and we were, now we, we had time in most places to do two or three takes actually.
0: Okay. Well, it's a brilliant idea. It's a crazy
1: idea, Steve. It's yeah. a really crazy idea, but it worked. Yeah, Damn sure it.
0: Did. Well, thanks so much, man, for talking to me today. I, I I really appreciate the time and all the stories and stuff. It's uh, it's a my pleasure, a great history, and and it's awesome to talk to you. And and also, thanks for writing the book. I'm really enjoying it, and I'll get to the end.
1: Oh, you know, I, I did try. I did try and write it with an American audience in in mind because I think one of the one of the things that if you if you don't understand skiffle, you're not going to understand. The Beatles, or uh, Zeppelin, or any of those bands—you know—you've got to understand the, the blues boom, the beat groups, the folk uh, boom as well—all comes out of skiffle. You know, we were not a culture with a guitar in it until Lonnie Donegan turned up singing about the Rock Island Line. That puts a guitar in the hand of every sentient schoolboy in the UK, and and the the changes everything. Changes everything in my country. It yep. does, and 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 deserves credit for that. And that's what I was trying to put across to an American audience, And I'm ever so pleased that the, in America, the book is, you know, relatively well for a British book about a rather obscure musical format has done it's quite well. Fun. I'm really pleased about that. Yeah. Very happy. Yeah. Okay, mate.
0: All the best. Appreciate the time, man. Thanks. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. That was my conversation with Billy Bragg. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening to it. I hope you dug it as much as I did doing it. It was fun. That guy knows what he's talking about. All right. We'll see you next month for another episode of music makers and soul shakers. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, B.C. for his help with research and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers.